My name's Tabby. And I'm Caitlin. And today we're going to be continuing our discussion about A Court of Mist and Fury by Sarah J. Mast. So in the part one, um, we gave a synopsis of the book. If you haven't read it and you want to just spend a couple hours just listening to us summarize it for you. Otherwise, everything we're going to talk about in this part is kind of delving a little deeper into the story. So there will be spoilers. Everything is a spoiler. (laughs) Everything is a spoiler. That's kind of how this podcast is going to work. We're going to summarize the book for you and then talk about it. So first off, we're going to kind of talk about our overall opinion of the book, what we would rate it, and like what we liked and disliked about the book. So um, I'm a huge fan of book number two. Like I obviously loved book one, but book two, I think is really what made me fall in love with this series. It is like a revitalization. (laughs) It's so good. Um, And if I could, I'd give it a 1000 out of 10. (laughs) Um, Just so many great things about it. I mean, there's some stuff, obviously, like it's not perfect by any means, but it is fantastic. What would you give it? So on Goodreads, actually, you can see I have rated this one five stars. It is on my favorite (laughs) shelf. Like you said, it's my favorite of the series. So the first book, it gets you interested. It pulls you in. But the second book, it puts your head under the water and you're here to stay. Like you have been kidnapped by by Sarah J. Mass at this point. You eat, sleep, and breathe Akatar until you have finished this series at this point. Like this is the book that gets you. Uh, It very much makes you fall in love with all of the characters. Well, not only that, but just the way that she ends it too has you immediately just reaching for the third one because you're like, you can't leave me hanging like that, Yeah, the cliffhanger is good. Uh, Oh, I remember like the first time I read (laughs) the second book, I was distraught that Reese and Pharaoh were separated. I was like, they just found each other. They just found love. Like, how? How could we come to this? But I knew, I knew Pharaoh was about to have her hot girl summer. She was about to absolutely <laughs> dismantle the spring court. Like, she came in here with a mission. Oh, yeah. It's such a huge difference from obviously the beginning of the book where she is just like, you know what, I could die and it'd probably be okay. To now it's like she is about to be (laughs) Savior Prithian again. She is so sure of herself too. Like she realizes I've earned this. Like I deserve this. And that's what I think is really, there's this moment between her and Brees. And I can't remember exactly like the context, but she basically tells Reese that they both deserve to be happy. And I can't remember the exact quote. I'll have to like look that up, but you know what I'm talking about? She's like, we deserve happiness. Like you and I. It's at Starlight or yeah, during Starfall, isn't it? I think so. That sounds like it would be the right time Mm -hmm. in the book, but she just realizes like I'm worthy of love. I'm worthy of everything that has come into my life. Well, and she even says later on too, like after the mating bond clicks into place that like, that was like the first time she realized like she was in love with him and that like they both deserve that. So yeah, I I think it was at Starfall. Yeah. It's such a sweet scene. So last time we talked about the first book in the series and how the first book is very much similar to Beauty and the Beast. The second book is not quite as like cut and dry as with the first book. But it is really cool how she has um, based this story kind of on a retelling of Hades and Persephone. 
Yeah. And so there are just so many variations of the story of Hades and Persephone, unfortunately. Um, but like Kayla was saying, it is like the general concept of it where, you know, the lady of spring and Persephone's the goddess of spring is stolen away by like the dark lord who is supposed to be resand. When she gets there, realizes it is not what everyone has said it was to be. And the underworld or, you know, what is the night court like is actually this beautiful city that there's real people who live there, real citizens. Um, And so just there's a lot of similarities that I do tie between the two. Um, Obviously, in every retelling of Hades and Persephone, there is a different I guess, bad guy in this case. Um, yeah. It's Tamlin. Um, and I think it kind of loosely relates to Demeter almost, who is like the goddess of harvest, like trying to get her daughter back, like willing to like wage war, willing to like betray yeah. alliances. So I, I really do feel like that was kind of the vibe she was going for. Mm-hmm. I agree. And um, in this particular, like, like version, like Sarah J. Mass's version, um, Reese, who is Hades in this case, is already in love with Feyre or Persephone, but Feyre does not uh, return those feelings until later. Um, he doesn't like take her against her will or anything like some of the versions, but um, yeah, she very much like is against him at first, um, not quite wanting to build an alliance with him, but then uh, later realizes she was wrong. Well, in a lot of retellings of the story, too, um, Hades actually also falls in love with Persephone before he knows her. He actually has dreams about her and, like, kind of foresees this person. And I think, you know, obviously, Reese and later on, like, when they're talking about the mating bond, tells Feyre that he had dreams of this girl and, like, he could see her painting, he could see her in a barn. And so um, that was another tie between the two stories. That's cool. I didn't even realize that was like a a thing in Hades and Persephone. But yeah, we're going to touch more on like the mating bond later. So that was kind of we just kind of wanted to like draw attention to that comparison. Because again, it's not quite as obvious as with the first book, but it's still there. And it's uh, it's a fun like take on it. But another thing we didn't talk about in the last book is tropes. And so <laughs> yeah. there are two pretty major tropes that everyone loves, everyone talks about, everyone looks for these in most books. And so first one is the one bed trope. And so what this is, is you have your two main characters who, you know, thus far have remained frenemies or enemies, and it's always an enemies to lovers type books. And somehow they end up at some place. And instead of you know, being able to rent a room or sleep in two separate beds. There's always one bed and it forces them together. And a lot of the time it is like the beginning of like their love story. Like they can't stay away from each other. They're sharing this bed. The proximity is just too close and, you know, (laughs) things happen. And this room is literally, not only is it one bed, it is the tiniest, most cramped room. And there's only only one square foot. (laughs) And they actually have to like stand on top of each other. Um, so it's like not only is there just one bed, there's no way that they can do the thing where you know, like I'll take the floor. You know, like there's no like they did up. the mortal mortal realm. Yeah, exactly. Um, in in the mortal realm, Reese kind of like conjures up a a little single bed um, because Pharaoh's like I am not sleeping in the same bed as you Um, but in this instance like that's not an option this room's tiny so I feel like yeah Reese like immediately walking in was just like fuck yes yeah oh yeah he was happy about it like he couldn't show it yet 
but he wanted to. He wanted he was, to like it. screaming on the inside. <laughs> yeah, shout with joy. Now the second trope that we see is my least favorite trope. It well, not it's not true. My yeah, least favorite least trope favorite. is the pregnancy trope. We'll talk oh, about that later, oh. some other later day at a different <laughs> time. It's absolute trash, dog water. But this close second is the miscommunication trope. So what the miscommunication trope is, is when we have a very solvable problem between the two (laughs) characters, and for some reason, they just cannot rub their two brain cells together to work it out amongst the two. They keep creating problems for themselves. They keep making excuses like, oh, well, you know, this could work, but here's all the reasons why it shouldn't. It's like, "Mm, that's not really a good reason. Yeah, and they're always like, I can't even, like, bring it up to them because if they knew that I felt this way, like, they'd never look at me the same again. Like When, in fact, the other person is exactly feeling the same way, and it's just the most frustrating thing on earth. (laughs) And honestly, I think, you know, Rhysand is kind of the one to blame to begin with because he knows he knows, and, like, he just assumed, I mean, he was kind of right in assuming Feyre probably wouldn't have taken it super well. Yeah. However, he drew it out for way longer than he needed to. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, Feyre, you know. It always all- happens that way, though. Like, they have a valid right. excuse to not say it, and then it draws out so long, they're like, well, if I well, say now it I can't now, bring it up. yeah, and then they'll get angry. So it's like, honesty <sighs> is the best policy, folks. Like It's like Feyre, too. Um you know, she has these feelings for him and she's like, I'm going to make him work for it. And he's like, you know, what do you want, Farrah? She's like, oh, I want some fun. It's like, why did you say that? <laughs> yeah, she literally. And like, she's like, yeah, this he knows I'm joking. No, he doesn't. No, because like he literally before they got in their one bed together, he had told her like, Farrah, I'm in love with you. I feel like when I look at you, it feels like I'm dying. <laughs> punched in the face. I, <laughs> I want to be with you more than anything in the world. And they get in that bed together and they're about to like mess around. And Reese is like, what do you want from this? And she's like, I just want to fling. Like, I just want a distraction. But in her head, she's like, he'll get what I'm saying. <laughs> she's so stupid. Oh my God, man. Uh, Oh my that god! Was yeah, the so most frustrating part of this whole book. Hey, <laughs> yeah, I actually just I finished a book recently with a pretty solvable miscommunication. Trope. I hate it. Um, the sweetest oblivion. Okay, but like, it's a good book. <laughs> I mean, I liked it, but like, what was up with that? Was so avoidable. Anyway, Elena, okay. just she's a dumb main character, and she we, is. May, we may do this book series later, but <laughs> we should at some point. But I do recommend you guys read those books. The main, is, the main series is ten out of ten. Mm-hmm. It's fun. It's spicy. It's Mafia. interesting. It's entertaining, and um, it it does kind of make you question your morals, but it's okay. It's like in a fun way. That's fine. Like, am I wrong? Like in a good way? (laughs) Yeah. We digress. (laughs) So the next thing we're going to kind of touch on is one of my favorite things. Um, So we're going to talk about symbolism throughout A Court of Mist and Fury. I would like to start with wolves as a symbol because this ties into the first book. So the very first book starts, as we know, with Feyre killing Andras, who was in the form of a wolf. And at that point in time, she hated the Fae. So she has absolutely zero remorse when she does that. And the whole first book is about her journey of falling in love with Tamlin and becoming sympathetic to the Fae. 
we start off the second book. She has just come home from under the mountain and she is feeling like shit. She is feeling broken, guilty, so remorseful. (laughs) Yeah, she is just like heartbroken at the fact that she had to kill these fey people when after she had killed Andres in the first book, she was literally like, well, what can you do? Like, it's winter time and I got to eat. So and this is the forest. <laughs> yeah. And this is the forest. <laughs> and so Farah, she spends a good beginning chunk of the second book this way, like completely broken. Then she goes to live with Reese at the night court eventually. And she is like finally coming into her powers. He is telling her, you need to go to the weaver's cottage and like face this trial. She is so scared. She thinks she's going to die. She's like having her panic attacks. But outside of the weaver's cottage, she's like, you know what? I'm not prey any longer. I am a a bad bitch. Uh, Yeah. So she she is like, I'm a wolf. She is at this point in the novel finally kind of like she still feels guilty she has not uh, forgiven herself yet but she is kind of finally allowing herself to realize her own powers and like feel like she can <laughs> do she's something. understanding that like she was almost like that she was being smothered in the spring court like she's understanding that like she let herself become weak and that she let herself not really explore to the fullest extent like what she was able to do um and so I it was like a kind of a turning point almost for her understanding like she needs to get back into that old mindset exactly yeah so she's like returning to that like huntress Pharaoh persona she's like I got this so yeah so in the weaver's cottage when the weaver does like sense that she's there kind of same thing Farah's like I was a wolf and I bit when cornered so she's like I am fighting my way out of this I am not dying in here which is a big thing for her to feel that way because at the beginning of this second book she very much was like I should have died I want to die (laughs) yeah so at this point she's like finding a sense of hope again finally Toward the end of the book, when Valaris is being attacked by Highburn soldiers, Farah is using her powers to the full extent at this point. This is the first time she has like released a whole like arsenal of her powers. So she commands the water from the sea and from the river into these wolves. And these wolves are made of water. She has them like hunting down the soldiers and then literally going down their throats and drowning them to death. It's amazing. It's powerful. And it kind of brings her full circle to like being that powerful, like strong protector and provider that she was in the first book but at this point um one who is a fae and loves fae people well and I think that's a really cool part too because it also kind of shows that like like even though like she's not high lady yet like it's showing her and Rhysan too as like equals also Mm -hmm. because like she's able to block him out and kind of fend for herself but he's also able to like help her and you know lend her power and like let her do her own thing and so I think that was a great thing too Absolutely. And the entire book, Reese has always made it clear to her, like, she gets to make her own decisions. And even though he was feeling like, so instinctively protective of her, uh, because they had like recently solidified their mating bond, he was like freaking out, worried about her safety, but he was able to accept the fact that 
she was making the choice to defend their people off on her own. So that is um, kind of a testament to like how healthy their relationship is in comparison to, to the tampon. one she had with Tamlin <laughs> to tampon. Um, let's just call him like a bunch of T words. Like let's just call Tamlin like tomato. Tamlin a ding dong trampoline. Like that's so if we just, you know, Armac. if we say a T word, that's he who should not be named. Um, so the second symbol that we're going to talk about is the night sky. Feyre, at the beginning, when she is having her nightmares at the spring court, she like wakes up violently ill in the middle of the night. But every time she does, she finds comfort by looking out into the night sky. She, on page six, she's just gotten sick. She moves over to the adjacent wall near the cracked window where I could see the night sky. Page 38, she has another nightmare before her wedding. And she looks out the open windows and it says the dark sky beckoned the stars so dim and small, like speckles of frost. And I kind of like that language there that the dark sky is beckoning to her because again, like that idea that she is like fated to be high lady of the night court and the stars are so dim and small because they're they're She's so far from where she needs to be. She's so far from home. Well, on top of that, too, um, this is actually in the first book. But do you remember when Feyre sees like the mural of Prithian for the first time Um, when she looks at the night court? She like everything else she had like been like, I never want to freaking go there. But when she looks at the night court, she like described it as very beautiful. And it like is what drew her in. And like and that was the one that like kind of called to her in the mural, too. She also, um, on page 75, this is actually the first time she was in the night court. She had another nightmare, um, but she, when she woke up, the room was so open, the starlight so bright that when I jerk awake, I didn't rush to the toilet. So it's like she's finally like surrounded by the night sky and because the room is like all open windows, she can see it all around her and she feels comforted. She also... When she was a human, Elaine had gotten her paints at one point. So she decorated the whole house and she decorated this little dresser that she shared with her sisters and painted a drawer for each of them. And on her own drawer, she had painted the stars and moon and clouds and just endless dark sky, which Reese also he was getting like glimpses of her life when she was a human before he had even met her. And he had at one point sent a thought back to Feyre of the night sky. And he said he sent a thought back in the hope she would get it of the night sky, which is the image that brought me joy when I needed it most. But yeah, maybe all of this like comfort of the night sky came from Reese projecting this image to her before she knew him, before he knew her. He sent her this image with all of this feeling of um, comfort that it held for him. Mm -hmm. And it kind of like stuck there for her. So she also, when she's at the night court and she's going out to see Valaris, she notes that there's beauty in life throughout Valaris. Around us, the city twinkled, the stars themselves singing to hang lower. Life, so full of life. So it, to her, it just, it's so much more peaceful and comforting than anything she's been surrounded by in the spring court. And whenever Feyre and Reese are like pretending they're not in love with each other, 
Reese is saying he's jealous of Tarquin and he says he's jealous because he'll never know what it is to look up at, at the night sky and wish. And then we get like our kind of well-known quote. Yeah. To the people who look at the stars and wish Reese to the stars who listen and the dreams that are answered. So to Reese, so like, it's honestly a symbol for both of them of like comfort and hope and like everything that brings them joy in life. Like it's just the stars in the sky. They fall in love during Starfall. Well, Pharaoh returns his love during Starfall. Um, she also was born on the winter solstice, which is the longest night of the year. Also, do you think it's kind of effed up that like Pharaoh's mom was like, let's just move your birthday to another day? <laughs> yeah, she, yes, of course I do. Her mother was horrible. Her mom's like, it's too close to the winter holidays. So like, can sorry. we just do it like on a different day? And then she forgot. Yeah. Like, she Farrah, moved it. <laughs> Reese is the only person who's ever in, been interested in Farrah's birthday. And that just goes to show too how much better Reese is than Tamlin because oh, Tamlin yeah. at no point in time was like, you know, it's been about a year now. Like, have you heard her birthday, birthday yet? Mm-hmm. <laughs> nah. He's just like, yeah, I'm sure she did. Or maybe it's just like, maybe they don't have birthdays. Yeah, he's like humans. Such I odd celebrate those. <laughs> so the third and final symbol that we'll talk about today, um, it's kind of like a twofer, I guess, but uh, the Illyrian wings and flying. To Pharaoh, it very much symbolizes freedom and also intimacy with Reese. So on page 290, they had just spent the night out with the inner circle having dinner and Reese is flying them home. And Farah, for the first time, says, I could learn to love it. I realized the flying. And at this point, she is just kind of starting to feel like she has found a place with these people and uh, a home here in the night court. On page 298, she had been training with Cassian and had a bit of a mental breakdown because she finally like admits that she she was like I should have been the one that died under the mountain so she is having a moment Reese comes over and his wings wrapped around them and like she just felt comforted and safe and so that was a moment of intimacy with him and it's also something that she it kind of like sparks her wanting to paint too, because she notes that the sunlight casts the membrane in golden red. And then later she paints the cabins uh, walls or no, the mantle with the Illyrian wings. Page 461, Lucian like corners Farah in the forest and is trying to take her back to the spring court. And she manifests Illyrian wings with her shape-shifting powers to assert her freedom um, and choice to remain at the night court. <laughs> Not to mention, Reese told Feyre he's never had his wings out with anyone before, like during <laughs> like intimate um, <clears throat> They're like getting down and dirty. He has never <laughs> had his wings out. Because wings are so like important to Illyrian men. Um, but the first... And like every time that he, um, you know, is intimate with Feyre, his wings are out. And so that is like a, it's a big thing for them. Uh, Again, uh, symbolizes like how she's having like the freedom to make her own choices now and also gaining more intimacy with Reese. 
Um, well, some other ones that I actually just thought of too about the wings, they all kind of have to do with Resan's mother, um, mm-hmm. which we don't get to hear a lot about uh, until like the end of the book, I think. But like whenever you know, Resan is talking the first time that Feyre ever meets the inner circle, he's talking about how you know Illyrian females are. Um, their wings are clipped before they fully become women. Like when they fir- have their first period, like their wings get clipped and how um, Rhysand's mom always felt like her wings like symbolized her freedom. And so she knew like the minute that hers were clipped, like she would no longer be able to, you know, experience the joy of flying and have that freedom because she didn't fully trust her people. And so, you know, Rhysand's dad coming in to rescue her, that kind of symbolized like her, you know, debt that she had to him and like how, important those were to her and so I think that's a really good way to symbolize like what the Illyrians will kind of go to for their wings um and then whenever Rhysand's mom and sister were murdered um Tamlin's father cut off their wings because he knew like it was like a grave insult to the Illyrians like how important they felt about their wings and so um first of all Tamlin's dad just sounded like a dick yeah worse Um, than Tamlin oh I'm (laughs) sorry uh worse than toilet sorry yeah Tarzan just couldn't even handle it um (laughs) And then the other one is like whenever Reese is talking about like Pharaoh's asking him like if he loved flying and stuff like he always kind of relates it back to his mom when he talks about his wings like um how he used to go flying in the middle of the night and like his yeah. mom his dad hated it but like um, every time his mom saw him do it she would like join him in the skies and it was like a chance for him to you know not really feel the struggles of one day becoming the high lord it was like a time for him and his mom to just you know kind of have that between them. Yeah, and even though Reese's dad seems like quite a bit of a dick as well, I think it also is a um, a symbol of his intimacy with his mate, uh, Reese's mother, because when he first sees Reese's mother, like her wings are about to be clipped, like they caught her trying to flee to prevent it, and they're about to do it, but he is, <laughs> he literally misted them just incinerated (laughs) these people who were trying to clip her wings and uh, he let her keep them because of how much how strong the mating bond is and how much they care for each other when they are mated yeah I don't know. I I like the wings. I think the wings are my favorite part of symbolism in this book just because they do Mm -hmm. play such a big role and they also play a big role too in like future books so it's like an ongoing thing for Ion mm-hmm well, let's talk a little bit about character development. Obviously, we were introduced to a lot of new characters. We had some returning characters from the last book who just turned into absolute sleazeballs. Um, so starting hey, with trash can. <laughs> can't handle him. Oh, Tamlin. <laughs> Our little tampon. Um, <laughs> we'll save him for last. Can't even look at him right now. Um favorite you know is our main heroine of the book um we've talked a little bit about you know her journey just to becoming the boss bitch that she is now um immediately following under the mountain she is just not in a good place mentally physically emotionally she's basically just like a husk of a person who is just trying to float on through the universe and not getting any attention at home not really being acknowledged that she needs help um Tamlin and Lucian are kind of just doing their own thing and they're like well she's here so that's enough 
And so you just see so much character development from the time she leaves the spring court to when we have this final meet with um, Highburn that she's just become basically a whole new person. And so there's a lot of different moments just throughout the book where you can see her have some like key thoughts kind of click into place where she's like, oh, that maybe wasn't right. Like, I don't know <laughs> the way they're treating me. Because for the longest time, like she knew something wasn't right, but she kept trying to just like justify it almost. And she even did that like when she first got to the night court, like even when she was in Valar, she was like, well, it wasn't all that bad. And he was like, mm, wasn't it though? And so I think that also just kind of goes to show like how being gaslit, being like emotionally abused can really affect a person's whole like mental thought process. And so being in like a safe environment, being in a loving environment really like nurtured her and allowed her to, you know, kind of find some of that inner peace. Yeah. And I think this book, a lot of people who do love this book Part of the reason is because of Feyre's journey specifically and her battle with um, struggling with her mental health, but then ending up accepting herself, forgiving herself, which is so hard to do. And so this book is kind of, um, it's really meaningful to a lot of people for that reason. Well, and also goes to show, you know, like everyone's had that boyfriend who is Tamlin. Like everyone's <laughs> had that not woman. Me. Just like, not, not you. Not you. <laughs> perfect. Love that for you. A lot of people have had that one boyfriend who is just like, everything is like your fault, even if it's clearly theirs. And so, I don't know. I think that probably resonated with a lot of people. And maybe yeah, some people absolutely. were still in that relationship and they're just like, oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I hope this was the wake up call for someone. And they were like, I'm dumping him um, yeah. or her. Yeah. So <laughs> the joke is everybody that <laughs> Tabby and I have been best friends for a long time. And um, <laughs> Tabby and I are both thinking of a same ex-boyfriend of hers. <laughs> That's what makes this all so relatable. Oh man. It's uh, a real gemstone <laughs> of a man. So resand. Our little sweet, perfect angel. I mean, he's not perfect. He's, he's not perfect. He's and done I'm a lot of to acknowledge you know that. It makes me love him more. Um, he obviously, when we first met him in the first book, complete dick. Turns out he had a reason. Does that necessarily justify it? I'll let Was you the execution that. perfect? Certainly not. <laughs> I'm willing to look past it. I am more than willing to look past it. He, in the first book, was very much acting like an asshole because he had on this, like, mask that he had to put on. He had to put up this front for Amarantha to try to, like, save his people. He still had Valaris back home to get to. And um, not only that, but it was a secret from Amarantha. So he's, like, doing everything in his power to keep it that way. Again, did he do some fucked up things? Absolutely, he did. But did he look hot while doing it? Absolutely. So because he's feeling guilty now that he's out from under the mountain, he's going through similar things to Miss Feyre. He is feeling remorseful. He's feeling like um, he didn't do enough. He is feeling like he doesn't deserve to be happy and free. Um, He has nightmares of his own. He has nightmares that it's Cassian or Asriel being forced to service Amarantha and he's like being forced to watch like he is just 
rolling in guilt, feeling like he doesn't deserve Feyre. Feyre doesn't want him. He's a little mopey. Um, (laughs) So he is getting pretty frustrated by the time Feyre is like literally skin and bones. He is like, I cannot fucking take this anymore. I'm getting her out. My damn mind. (laughs) Yeah. He is like the last thing that I have that's like keeping me going is Feyre is alive and I'm not about to let her die again. So he gets her out and he's like, listen, I got you out of this situation, but if you do want to go back, like just say the word, like it would literally kill him if she wanted to go back, but he gave her that choice and he he shouldn't have though. I feel like that was kind of enabling of him to be like, I will let you go back. It's like, but but it's worse. And we know from experience, it's worse when someone who cares about you tells you that you need to do something a certain way. (laughs) <laughs> and you don't want to do that thing. It just leads to problems. Um, so I get where he was coming from. I get it. Yeah. So Reese, over time, when Feyre starts to um, get her own shit picked up and like realize that Reese is like here for her, he starts to like come out of his shell quite a bit. He does get frustrated when they're kind of having like their back and forth again it's the miscommunication trope because they both just want to make out but neither one of them won't do it they just won't do it they just stand there in awkward tension (laughs) they just look into each other's eyes and they don't do anything about it and it just leads to them both being (laughs) sexually frustrated um same for the readers (laughs) And so, yeah, over time, Feyre, like, learns to care for him, and that means a lot to him. My favorite part of, like, the whole, <laughs> like, mating part of, like, that chapter, like, chapter 55, when everything good in the world happens, mm-hmm. um, when he is, like, you know, explaining to her the story of how, basically, the, like, they got to this point in their life, when he was, like, talking about them under the mountain, <laughs> and he's, like, yeah, and, you know, I dressed you up like that. And I drugged you every night because I wanted to protect you. And I'm just like, mm. yeah, that my is, toxic trait is that I am going to look past that. I, I hear that because the thing is, well, okay. <laughs> I goes back it. to, it goes back to, he has a justification. Does that, that wasn't right? <laughs> I mean, he, yeah, his reason. I'm not saying, I'm not saying I support it. Am I saying like okay? I get that I was trying to like stake his, have... like stake his claim on her, mm-hmm. and like it is trying to like make everyone think like he was just using her or whatever. But that's so fucked up. <laughs> it is. It really is. But I don't know. It's like the alternative would be her just sitting in the dungeon cell every night. I don't know. It's worse. I think it might have also been selfishly motivated. Yeah, like he wanted to. to, Yeah, he wanted to be around her. He wanted to be the one making sure she was safe. Like he wanted to, like you were saying, have an eye on her to like make sure that like no harm was coming to her, kind of thing. Yeah, but he Um, like already threatened the guards. Was the thing. Yeah, touch them, I'll kill you. I don't know. I get. I I can see it both ways. It's like, but this way he's able to like protect her without it being as suspicious. But here, okay, here's a scenario, though. So, say, Amarantha decides, middle of this party, like, Farah, you know what, I changed my mind, and we're just gonna fuck with you right now. Mm-hmm. Like, what was he gonna do? Do you think he would just freaking try to kill her right then and there? Like, what was he gonna do? <laughs> That's a great question. 
And I think he would have slipped up. I think he would have slipped up and he would have, yeah, he would have lost his shit. Like if Amarantha had straight up tried to kill Feyre, you mean? Yeah. Cause I don't know. If she was just like, do you think Tamlin would have done anything? I don't know because I also don't know what are the consequences for her if she breaks the bargain that she made with Feyre. Like, is there some kind of like magical consequence? Because they talk about that she wouldn't like harm her. Well, no, because that was the whole thing with the bond, like with the bond they made. She like, even though Farah completed the trials and stuff, like she still fucking snapped her neck. <laughs> well, I think the thing is that she promised that Farah would would complete these trials every time there's a full moon. She's like, you're gonna have a trial and you're gonna do it. So I think if she had somehow like intervened and prevented Farah from doing those trials, the bond that would have been, been breaking poorly. her end of the bargain. Yeah. But since Feyre completed all three of her trials, at that point, she's like, I can just kill you because I have upheld my end of the bargain kind of thing. Yeah, I think, yeah, just coming back to it, like, I don't know. I feel like it was a good plan, I guess. But, like, I want to know what he would have done, like, if he'd had to step in because that would have ruined the. Yeah, I do think it was a bit selfishly motivated. Um, Am I still into it? Yeah, like I said, I will look past it immediately. I just think it's wild. I do want to make it clear that we are both feminists. Um, <laughs> I'm a feminist until I read a smut book. Yeah, I listen. They're separate categories. It's just, it's separate. What happens in a book does not accurately represent who I am as a person. Absolutely, absolutely. Um <laughs> <laughs> so Feyre and Reese, they both become better and they make each other better at the end. Um, the inner circle. <laughs> Love the inner circle. We get so many cool people introduced in the inner circle. My favorite, okay, out of you know, all four of them, they're all cool in like their own separate way. And Feyre creates like really neat bonds with them in their own separate ways. My favorite though is Cassian. Mm-hmm. Like Cassian has always been my favorite just because. He has his own demons that he is struggling with. Obviously, he doesn't think he's good enough either. And I think that's kind of like an ongoing theme in the books is that like everyone has these own like inner demons that they're working with. And like some of them handle them really well. Some of them don't. Looking at you, Tamlin. Um, (laughs) Hey, this is officially an I hate Tamlin podcast. Welcome to the roast of Tamlin. but anyway, like I, I, Cassian's definitely my favorite member of the inner circle, just not only for his loyalty, but he makes, I think, Feyre feel the most welcome out of anybody. Um, he immediately, you know, relates to her. He wants to know everything about her. He wants her to know like, yeah, you know what, even though you grew up the way that you did, like, look at where you're at now, like, look at where I'm at now. And so I think that's cool. And I think he also just realizes like the inner strength that she has. Um, and that's why he's like, yeah, I want to help train you. Like, I want you to get back to where you are. Um, but he's also very respectful of like the mental boundaries that she's kind of set for herself. And um, he's not one to really pry. However, he's also not one who's going to let her, you know, like wallow in self-pity. Um, and so I think my favorite part was when he like really made her confront the fact that she had sent that letter to Tamlin and like basically said she was never coming back. I said she wasn't going to talk about that with anybody. She was just going to keep that to herself. And so him being like, you know, let's talk about it. And even though she doesn't want to, like it still got her thinking and that kind of led up to the point where she almost had like that small breakdown while they're training. But 
I think that was a big breakthrough for her. And and, like, that was the big moment where she was like, you know what, like what he did was so fucked up. Like this dude just kept me locked up. He kept me weak. He kept me, you know, stupid to everything that was going on around it. And so I think Cassian was just a really big component in her, you know, getting back on that track to being healthy. Yeah. And speaking of Cassian, like just being like that friend that you need to like call you on your shit, rile you up, like get you to talk about things. So the mating bond like lore is oh yeah, it's cringy at times. Um, but one of the things is that like whenever there's like a new mating bond established, like the man gets like really territorial and weird and like wants to fight everyone who like looks at his mate. Um, so that. <laughs> it's it's cringy, but like it's fine if we're gonna establish that. They even like, acknowledge that too, though. Reese is like, yeah, this is like antiquated and disgusting, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, he's like, what can you do? Um, so what Cassian does is he literally like provokes Reese on purpose just so Reese can like beat the shit out of someone. <laughs> like, what a pal. <laughs> He's like, wow, Reese, your mate's hot. Like, Like, she doesn't look tired. Like, maybe she and I should go. And Reese is like, I am going to pummel you into the ground. I also just like his relationship, too, with like, okay, I like his relationship with Morin as. However, I don't like that he does kind of create a buffer because as much as he made Farrah kind of face her own shit, like he's let them go on and do this nonsense for so long. And it's like, like, what's going on here? Yeah, and we'll talk about that like um after we read the, the first or, sorry, the third book. Yes, but like more if anyone needs therapy, it's, it's more again. <laughs> yeah. She Ooh, and Will Asriel needs some therapy. My guy was locked in a closet for years. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I don't know. And, oh, and then Amron, who was like imprisoned, they all could probably have a good dose of some like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> mental health exercises. So yeah, maybe I recant my statement, but more certainly would benefit from like someone calling her on her shit. Speaking sure. of more, what's going um, on with more? What is what is up with (laughs) the power thing so they claim so morgan is reese's second in command she's the okay so he's got two illyrian warriors who have seven siphons each who literally like wiped the floor in the first battle against highburn and he's like more is who i call in after they're both dead why yeah (laughs) for what reason like i know she is at least a good fighter because she does like go like in combat she goes down like but is she any better than like any other illyrian like that's trained to fight like i am a little confused about it there's also like the thing with truth being her power but if her truth was so powerful then the queens would have taken her word because they knew who she was. Yeah. So it doesn't make sense. Like, and then they're like, well, you could not be actually Morgan. You could be just saying you're her. Like, how would you not know if she's so powerful? Well, then you recognized her. <laughs> yeah. It was, it's weird. It's confusing. It was either lazy writing or she just like forgot. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Cause then also like when Feyre, when Reese told her, you know, 
like more was the second she was like yeah so i want to know like what great and dark power is like roiling underneath her and i'm like yeah same because yeah, <laughs> we like, sure don't find out about it I feel like she just has her own shit that she needs to work out. And like, obviously what happened to her with her family was fucked up. And like, they literally nailed a note to her and dropped her off and said, good luck. But like, just the way that she treats Asriel sucks. And like, she just drags him on. And like, my poor guy has zero like emotional boundaries because he doesn't know how to, because he was locked in a closet for the first however many years of his life. Something just doesn't sit right with me about more. And I know a lot of people would like just freaking die for that character, but she's not my favorite. She's a good character. I just feel like there are some things about her that don't make sense. Though. Like I love what she does for Farah. I love that she is using like her own like newfound independence as a way to like empower Farah. But from there, there's just like a lot of character flaws. I don't know. Yeah, I, I do agree. And again, we can touch on that in more depth when some more information has been revealed about her. Um, but for now, Asriel, he is he baby cupcake cinnamon yeah, but he's a bit of a mystery in book two i feel so bad for him oh yeah i mean obviously with the whole more thing like that he's horrible. never known love like he knows love now but he did not he doesn't know, know like tender like intimate love he knows like like family love and like brotherly and sisterly love at this point in his life but like he doesn't know love like I think he knows love in the sense of loyalty but not in the sense of like but not in intimacy like like you said intimacy and like tenderness and like tell me all your secrets and your hopes and your dreams like it's just not on that level for him with anyone and unfortunately in this book like there's just not a lot of character development with Asriel um as there is going to be in the third book and so we'll touch on him quite a bit more um I do think his character is cool I do think he has like and Reese even kind of talks about it too like after you know knowing him for 500 years like even Reese isn't sure like what's going on with him like he said there's always just been like this like rage that he's never been able to break through and so I think eventually Sarah J Mass is going to write a book about him. I don't know. She might not. Um, <laughs> what if like <laughs> he just kind of remains like an enigma? What if she like writes a book about him and he's just like a serial killer and we all have to cancel him? Dude, <laughs> he's got to be like a freak for sure. Like, <laughs> like um, I know he's into some wild stuff. Like he's yeah. gotta, he can't be locked in a closet for that long and not have some sort of trauma that like relates to the bedroom. <laughs> Yeah, and I would love to know what those shadows are saying to him all the time. That's also weird to me. <laughs> um, I want to know, okay, I know, like, the shadows just kind of developed, um, like, while he was trapped in the closet, but I would love to know more about what, like, a shadow singer is, because I feel like she kind of, like, brought <laughs> it to attention, but obviously until we hear from, like, Azriel's point of view, like, no one really knows what a shadow singer is, yeah. um, and you can see multiple times throughout the book where, like, he doesn't know Farah's looking at him, but you'll, like, see, like, a, a shadow kind of curl around his ear, and then he'll immediately look at Farah. Yeah. and so that's fucking creepy to me, yeah. um, that the shadows are sentient, um, <laughs> and I, would I love, love it, though. I would I love, love to know more it. about them. Yeah, and I totally interpret it that way, that the shadows are literally, like, communicating with him, yeah. So many things about Azrael that, again, like, the inner circle, they touch on it, but they don't. (laughs) Listen, all I'm saying 
If I am written into one of Sarah J. Mass's novels, I I want to pursue Azra specifically. <sighs> given yeah. given everyone as an option, that's my choice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Amrin. Let's talk about Amrin. Cause she is a super interesting character as well, which again, we don't know a ton about her except for the fact that she is old. Um, older than possibly the bone carver. Um, Asriel does not trust her. Reese does with his life, though. So that's <laughs> an interesting dynamic. Um, it is. And I wonder, is Asriel like, well, surely if he knew I something. I think he's jealous. <gasps> Ooh. I think it's because he's jealous because Amran, like Reese puts like a ridiculous, like, and Amran is like his first to, person to know everything. Like, mm-hmm. okay, also, Amran, I don't know if you caught this, like, in the beginning, but whenever Farah comes to the inner circle, like, meets the inner circle for the first time, like, she, like, kept saying how Farah smells different, and then all of a sudden, like, she kind of gets surprised and, like, snaps her eyes to Reese. I think that's when she smells the bond for the first time. Ah. Um, <laughs> which I think it's weird that she was able to, like, scent it and no one else was. Well, it could just be because she's, like, some weird, like, creature that's not actually high fae. Yeah. Anyway, so Amran is old. Amran is Reese's first in command. They don't know what she is. I think it's weird that no one's ever asked her either. Like, you've known her for 500 years. Like, I get that it might be rude. Would there be, like, a word for it? I don't know. Um, But, like, I think it's just strange that he was just like, yeah, I have, like, a respect for that. And I'm not going to dig too much deeper into it. Even though there's literally this freaking crazy creature living with them who escaped an inescapable prison um that doesn't make any sense to me again is that something that we're gonna get like follow-up on or is it just kind of like loose ends i don't know like what is she um and i actually have my own theories based off of like other sarah j mass novels and if we ever cover them later like i'll talk about them or if you have read throne of glass or crescent city shoot me an email we can talk about it because um, <laughs> i've got some theories about it but yeah amarin's just kind of weird obviously she's a little stone cold but i do think she has just like this really unique love for Feyre, and like she really wants to see her do well obviously she wouldn't have given her the amulet for her to feel brave going under the, the or to the bone carver the first time um after you know surviving the water wraiths with Feyre. like they have like this unique bond forged after that where they feel like they can talk. Amran allows her to like stay with her and work with her while she's decoding the book of breathings. And so I think Amran really does like love Feyre. Yeah. And at the very end, when Feyre has gone to the spring court to be a Super spy, worried about her. Yeah. Immediately. That's the first thing that Amran says is where is she? Like she notices she's not there and she's like, where's Feyre? She also holds Reese accountable. She does, which is like a good thing because so obviously everyone um in the inner circle does feel comfortable like calling each other on their shit but like how far would any of them go to like disagree with Reese you know what I mean right eventually when Reese says something and like puts his foot down they're gonna kind of give up but I don't think Amron would if she truly believed something that he was doing was wrong like well, that was the, the whole reason why, like, he didn't tell Amran, like, he was going under the mountain that first time to meet with Amarantha because mm-hmm. he knew Amran would be like, absolutely not. And so he specifically tied, like, their beings into the protection spells at, on Valaris for 50 yeah. years because he knew Amran would disobey orders and go get him. True. 
let's talk about Lucian. First of all, <laughs> fuck you, Lucian. Fuck you, Lucian. I love you and I hate you. In the second book, I only hate you. He is forgiven later on for me. But in the second mm-hmm. book, fuck you. Like, go stub your toe. Come on, man. Like, he, he knew what was happening. Oh, he absolutely knew. And he was choosing not to go against Tamlin. You just escaped your 50-year, like, battle, essentially. You saw the dude who is running your court sit and do nothing. And you're like, yeah, I gotta yeah. obey this guy. Especially, like... like he watched Tamlin do nothing and he literally went and helped Feyre like yeah. himself when he could until he literally like at one point when Feyre needed him, he couldn't go to her because Tamlin had to like whip whipped. him. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, come on, Lucian, you know what a fucking wiener Tamlin is. Like, get it together. Yeah, and obviously Lucian is probably like struggling with his own like mental health issues, but there's still a limit. Like, there's a limit to the amount of um, shit you can just sit idly by and watch and uh, be considered blameless. And he surpassed that limit by a lot. He yeah, was he fucked up. <laughs> very much to blame. I do. Okay. I do think he realizes by the end of it that he fucked up. Oh, he does. Yeah, like he understands they messed up. (laughs) Yeah, and when he finds Feyre in the woods, like training her powers, and like he probably realized what she was doing because like they wouldn't let her train her powers in the spring court. And he's like, in his mind, like he has to be thinking like, this is one of the reasons why she left because he even was fighting for her at one point in the spring court to be able to train. But Tamlin said no, and he just like dropped it. But yeah, he's like, Feyre, like come home. We fucked up. We need you and when she was like no he was like no seriously like we're desperate and she's like no like go fuck yourself and then she shows off her powers and he's like oh god damn well because he was like we need you and then he was like no i need you because he understood like Mm -hmm. i can't control this man like no one can control this man like we have gone to some extensive lengths and like it is fucked over here like Mm -hmm. (laughs) we have messed up and so (laughs) I think it probably hurt him too, because when he sees Feyre, like he can obviously see she is very healthy, like she's strong. And so I feel like maybe some part of him like almost didn't. I think that's why he gave up mm-hmm. so easily. Like obviously Reese could have kicked his ass, but like, <laughs> yeah, I feel like <laughs> Feyre could have kicked his ass probably. If he had really wanted to, I think he probably could have grabbed her like yeah. without like alerting his presence. And so I feel like he kind of gave her a head start almost. <laughs> at the end whenever they're there um with the king of highburn and he's just kind of like okay i'm embarrassed to be here but then they bring in pharaoh's sisters and lucian is like, like oh we fucked up oh my god <laughs> like it hey buddy like new levels other people involved now <laughs> yeah he's like hey tamlin hey um you're ruining lives like left and right here well and they didn't know the queens were going to be there either right no, they didn't. I don't yeah. think they knew the queens were even like part like of part of it. Yeah, I, and also they didn't know Ianthe was even like allied oh, with the king until that moment. We should talk about Ianthe too. Oh yeah, we oh, should. Tamlin's just flabbergasted that like Ianthe um, could have made this stupid mistake. It's like. It wasn't a mistake, bestie. Well, and I think it was just fucking wild, too, that he was like, we can trust the King of Highburn to make this deal go smoothly. And he's yeah. like, what? He's involved the other people? Guy like, who yeah, sent Amarantha? <laughs> the guy who sent Amarantha to put a curse on you in your court? 
causing you to even be in this situation in the first place? Yeah, dog. He's going to involve some innocent people. Like, are you stupid? Oh my God. Tamlin. Yeah, he he is is stupid. stupid. (laughs) Let me answer it for you. Anyway, back to Lucian a little bit because we (laughs) will have more to say about Tamlin. I'm about to lose my mind over Tamlin. (laughs) So Lucian at the end, he sees through Feyre's like act that she puts up. He is like suspicious because one, he's like, we smelled the mating bond. Like, what do you mean? Like you're out of his spell all of a sudden. Two, when the night court winnows away and takes with her sisters, (laughs) who Lucian has just mated to Elaine. And so he's like, not only did his mate just get taken with people that he like thought were supposed to be the bad guys, but like Pharaoh's chill with it. And he's like, this is not like two plus two is not four right now. Like <laughs> math's not math. And right now <laughs> he is that meme with the lady, like watching equations go by. And he is just like, this is like, she's lying. Obviously. Are you she's sure. Lying. <laughs> So in the first book, when Farah is still kind of like not trusting Lucian yet, they haven't really become friends. She feels pretty uneasy about his mechanical eye um, because it is like not just mechanical. It's also magic. She felt like he could like see through to her soul. Yeah. And she is like, I, what all can that I see? And so it's like, that could be part of the reason why he is like calling her on her bluff. Also, her bluff is just not good. Tamlin's just, Tamlin's just stupid and gullible. (laughs) But, um, wow, everything is really just going exactly how I thought it would. (laughs) He's like, oh, yay. This could not have gone better. She loved me again. <laughs> and Lucian, well, Afera in her mind, when she realizes she fucked up by like not freaking out about her sisters going away, she's like, oh yeah, Lucian's on we'll to me back. because he's so cunning and all those years of like wisdom. And it's like, no, it's just because you acted like Reese was a horrible monster for like tricking you into a mating bond. And then you were like, oh, you but he's my sisters and it's chill. So right. She like bad, made it seem actor. like Reese had like melted her brain and she's like I can't remember things but then it's like but I know he won't hurt them it's like bestie yeah yeah. honestly I think he is just so afraid to call Tamlin on anything anymore because at this point Tamlin is unhinged like he is not going to see reason he is so completely like he he has just lost it and so Lucian's like probably feeling like there's nothing he really can do because when he like in the first book was telling Tamlin like we need to fight it like you need to like stand up to Amarantha like Tamlin could still like see reason at that point he wasn't like unreasonably like attached to Feyre he hadn't like fallen in love with Feyre and watched her neck get snapped he still wouldn't do it is the thing like I mean I couldn't see reason even then I'm not saying he was ever a reasonable man, but if we're comparing Tamlin from the first book to the second book, he was more reasonable in the first book than in the second. And like the bar is literally like a tripping hazard in hell, (laughs) but like it's there, I guess. Well, because like what I said, even in the first book was that he just wants to be comfortable in any way he can get it. Yeah. He's like, I want to take the easy road. Yeah. just want like the things that, like just fall into place happy and feel comfortable yeah exactly and so whenever (laughs) whenever he like 
and Feyre get in the fight about the tithe and she comes in to apologize. Like he's literally just going to give her a present and like everything's going to go back to normal. And when Feyre's like, but listen, like we need to talk about this because I'm drowning. He is like, what? What the fuck? (laughs) This is out of nowhere. (laughs) And he gets so mad. He destroys everything. And yeah, like he is just so unhinged at this point. Oh, but the theory about Lucian is that I think his eye can see through shit, and I think he can see Farrah's <laughs> body, even though she glamored it, but we can't confirm or deny that. <laughs> we keep trying to, like, talk about other things, but then we get so, like... <laughs> <laughs> the theory <laughs> is so that I do off. think he has a magical eye, and it can see through stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, let's trash talk Tamlin some more. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> or do you want to talk about Ianthe? <laughs> Oh, I think we should. Let's trash Ianthe for a little bit longer. And then if we if we have more to say about Tamlin, we sure can. Let's talk about um, how dog water of a friend she is. Um, horrible friend to everyone. Horrible friend. friend to Tamlin. Hor- yeah, like a literally a fake friend. Um, horrible person. Also, where the fuck was she for 50 years? Like, I know they sent her across the ocean or whatever, but like where? Obviously, she did something with Highburn. Like she somehow met the king of Highburn. So was she a high priestess before she went overseas or did she become a high priestess after that? I think she was before. So I think that's wild that they were just I mean, like, like yeah, that's cool. You can like go MIA for 50 years. It's fine. Well, I mean, no. where were the other high priestesses though? I wonder what they, they were, were like doing. when they sent Ianthe away. Like it was under the guise of like, like they were refugees. Yeah. Cause like, I remember Tamlin was like, yeah, her father's like one of my trusted advisors. And it's like, well, maybe we shouldn't trust him. I don't know. Cause it sounds like he went with them and somehow she ended up in cahoots with the king of highburn so like he's probably not safe to trust either absolutely not and what about the rest of her family because she had sisters or whatever like what are they doing i don't know are they also high priestesses i don't know like i feel (laughs) like like they were just like yeah she went overseas and now she has all these dangerous friends and it's like what the fuck happened overseas also i have a theory um it could be wrong. I don't think she's actually a high priestess. Either that or like she is just a freaking faker because they talk multiple times about how like Ianthe doesn't actually have power. And like I just read a passage about that. Yeah. It's like they talk about how like the high priestesses all have like this crazy power that they draw in from like the prayers and beliefs of like their people, which is weird. Um, but yeah. every time she like pretends to have like this powerful moment like there's like Feyre can't sense any power coming off just of her like set it up to like <laughs> yeah. an illusion Feyre says I hadn't witnessed any magic from her but when I'd asked Lucian he frowned and said their magic was drawn from their ceremonies and could be utterly lethal should they choose it I'd watch her on the winter solstice for any signs of it marking the way she'd positioned herself so that the rising sun filled her uplifted arms but there had been no ripple or thrum of power from her or beneath the earth well and then the other theory is that that is why she She's trying so freaking hard to like either get with a high Lord or a high Lord's son because she can pass off like her being powerful. If their kids are powerful, which they're obviously going to be, if she has offspring with a high Lord. Um, and so I feel like she's just one big faker and that the King of Highburn has somehow like promised her power. Yeah. <laughs> she is totally just a fake and a fraud. Yeah. Um, whenever I, or sorry, whenever Amarantha came into power 
Um, she was already a high priestess because okay. it says, despite being a high priestess, she and her family had escaped the horrors of under the mountain by running. Her father, one of Tamlin's strongest allies amongst the spring court and a captain in his forces had sensed trouble coming. How? See, that's suspicious. And, and passed I- off Ianthe, her mother and two sisters to Valahan. Well, it's because... Tamlin's dad was friends with the King of Highburn. So there's probably some dude left over from when his dad was High Lord. And he was just like, hey, let me call in my old buddy and get the fuck out of here. Like, I'm sure like somebody from the King of Highburn, like from the court of Highburn, like probably contacted him and was like, hey, you need to get your family out. Like shit's about to hit the fan. <laughs> the Adder had even said, we have allies in every territory. Mm-hmm. And so it's probably Ianthe's dad. Yeah, you're right. Ianthe was ambitious, clever, beautiful, and bold. But I did not think Lucian forgave her or would ever forgive her for fleeing during Amarantha's reign. Sometimes I honestly wondered if my friend might rip her throat out for it. Good. So he can probably see through her shit too. Like obviously he can. He knows she's a bad person but I bet he can see that she also like just is a fraud. And that's probably why like the high priestesses hate her. Um, Mm -hmm. Not only because she escaped you know during the 50 years and they didn't but because But she fakes her power. Since she doesn't have these powers Somebody had to give her this title. Like, somebody had to, like, fake her into it. I wonder if she, like, killed the original priestess. Like, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure how someone becomes a high priestess. That was never really explained. Yeah. Um, But, I mean, I'm sure something nefarious had to do with it. Obviously. She's just a fraud. She's a liar and a cheat. (laughs) And she is frizzy, and I don't like her. (laughs) So, in the synopsis, we talk about Ianthe had, like, tried to seduce all of the high lords or whatever. Feyre, upon hearing this, she is like skeeved out and she is like, what if she's doing that to Tamlin right now? Do we think while while Feyre was gone? Yes, I do. I do think he slept with her because I also think he slept with Amarantha because he's a messy (laughs) piece of shit. Like, of course he did. Like, okay, maybe he did it with Ianthe. I don't know. But I definitely think they were hooking up before, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like before Farrah left. Like, he wasn't getting it on the regular with her because she was depressed and she slept till five o'clock every day. Like, yeah, absolutely fucking Ianthe. I already, like, hate Tamlin and was mad at him, but that kind of, like, just the thought of that kind of takes any last, like, shred of, like, respect or, like, understanding that I had for him, and it, like, it crushes it, and so I'm afraid to, like, full-heartedly believe it. I full-heartedly believe that he's <laughs> at, le- at least sleeping. I don't think he did after Feyre left, because, you know, in the mind of somebody who is, like, emotionally and, like, mentally abusive, like, like, when they cheat, like, I don't think he really saw it as cheating. But when she left, like, he was so distraught by, like, their broken love that, like, he couldn't sleep with her. But I do think he somehow justified it in his head while Pharaoh was still there. I could see that. I really could. And I could be, you know, blowing smoke out my ass. But I do think that. I mean, it's just a theory. It's like, I believe that he would. I, I definitely would. believe that Ianthe would. So that's not like up for debate at all. <laughs> that's um, true. Some other things that we want to chat about. Um, I think one of the most fun ones to talk about and something that we'll be able to talk about more as we read more of the books. My favorite the theory. Serious Eight Court of Prithian. So yes. um, do you want me to kind of pull up that page where it's mentioned? Yep. It's page 193. 
Unfortunately, we can't talk a ton about it in this episode. However, for the third episode, I'm going to dive a little bit deeper into it because like I said, it is probably the biggest theory that I have put together right now that is going to be an ongoing one um, throughout basically the next three books. Um, And so basically on page 193, if you have it, go ahead and read it. Um, Yeah. So Farah and Reese are going to the prison and Farah asks if all of the High Lords have access to it. So Reese says, no, the prison is law unto itself. The island may even be an eighth court, but it falls under my jurisdiction and my blood is keyed to the gates. Yes. So this is just kind of going off of the idea that I do strongly believe that Farah's mom is somehow descended from Faye. And so when he said, you know, that there is, there could possibly have been an eighth court. First of all, Sarah J. Mast does not put things in books that are not going to be returning later. Like there was no other reason for her to put that in there unless there for a fact was an eighth court at one point in time. And so my theory is that somehow Farah's family is descended from this eighth court. We're not sure how, We're not sure what the eighth court was, but it does directly tie into mm, pretty good chance that somehow they are descended from them. Yeah. And it definitely, um, like you said, we'll be able to kind of contribute more to this theory as we talk about more of the books. So we'll kind of like save the nitty gritty details for that. But as you are reading (laughs) through this series like just keep that in mind keep that theory in mind and uh send us your thoughts because Mm -hmm. we would love to chat about it yeah even if you have read through to we've so we've read all the books in the series so if you have read through the fifth book please shoot us an email we we do want to hear your thoughts on this um I do also just have it's not really a theory but it's a really cool easter egg um that Sarah has put into all of her series and so we probably we'll cover some of these books later so I'm not going to spoil any of the content but um there is like an ongoing portion of each book where at some point in time the main female character is like washing the main male character and so typically it follows after something like traumatic has happened or like there's just been like a big like you know, kind of realization that they're taking that next step in like a relationship. And so we can see that happen in book two. And when after the mating bond has snapped into place, like they were getting down and dirty on top of the paint table, (laughs) um, they finally decide to go take a bath. And so um, Farah is, you know, washing Reese's wings, like lathering them up. And it's just like a very um, emotional moment between the two where they can finally feel like they can talk about, you know, things between the two of them. It's just a stepping stone in the relationship. They finally accepted the bond and have taken this to the next step. And um, we can also see this in Sarah J. Mass's first set like series that she's ever come out with Throne of Glass, 10 out of 10, if you haven't read it. In the novella, without, you know, ruining anything, there is a love interest who lives with the main female character. Um, and she is very selfish in the first book. And so she does not want to share like any of her belongings with them. Um, and he had tried to use her soap at one point in time. We see later on a different love interest has gone through some sort of battle and she allows him to like use her soap. And it's again, just kind of a way to show like she cares about this character and 
uses it more as like a growth opportunity um, where she wouldn't let this previous character use it because she was selfish. She is sharing this with this character because she understands, you know, things can change at the drop of a hat and she doesn't want to miss out on opportunities with them. And then in the third series, it's Crescent City, which is her most recent novel. Um, Again, the main male character has gone through this traumatic event. He um, is kind of catatonic, like in the shower, basically. And so the main female character ends up washing his wings and like kind of taking care of him. And so she always uses like this particular scene just as a way to show like a bond between the two characters. The next thing we're going to talk about is just, it's so fun. We just kind of like discovered we this just the other this day. together. <laughs> yeah. So we're very excited um, uh, to talk about this. So when Feyre is at the Weaver's Cottage, the Weaver is singing. Um, she's got a really nice, like lovely singing voice, but she is singing this creepy ass song. Um, it starts on page 217. So I am going to kind of, I think if we just kind of split it into the verses that it's split up into and kind of chat about each one as we go. There were two sisters, they went playing to see their father's ships come sailing. And when they came unto the sea brim, the elder did push the younger in. That's totally Nesta and Vera. Like their father's a merchant. <laughs> their father's a merchant. Nesta's an asshole. In a way, she did push Vera in because at the beginning of the first novel, their family is starving to death, and everyone's just like, "Okay, Vera, go out and feed us. Like, go out into the woods, you small child, and go provide for your family." So the next part. Sometimes she sank, and sometimes she swam till her corpse came to the miller's dam. So that is like a little less, I guess, direct, but I, I think I kind of interpret that as like coming to the Miller's Dam is like when Feyre like comes to Prithian, like comes to the spring court and is kind of like in this new position. She's feeling like the, sometimes she sank, sometimes she swam, like she's having a really like rough go of it in Prithian. She's like almost killed by like new monsters all the time, like every day and um, really going through some emotional turmoil throughout the first and second book. I don't know. Do you interpret the Miller as being anyone else? No, but I do. I think we have two different theories on this next verse. And it says, but what did he do with her breastbone? He made him a vial to play on. What did he do with her finger so small? He made pegs to his vial with all. So I don't really like, obviously, I think she he's talking about Tamlin in this this sentence because he does play the fiddle or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, my take on it, though, is that like he's using her. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously like there was an, an end goal to him taking her to Prithian where, um, he kidnaps her. He's trying to make her fall in love with them. When he does, you know, finally make her fall in love with him. She saves them all. He kind of just like throws her, like casts her aside and never really uses her again. And so I think it's just a, a good way to show like how he kind of broke her apart and like used what he needed. Yeah, absolutely. I do agree. Um, and I, I also, also think that it's about Tamlin um in in the next little part too it says and what did he do with her nose ridge unto his vial he made a bridge what did he do with her veins so blue he made strings to his vial there too the veins part specifically like that is so symbolic to me of like your circulation 
is like you're you could like interpret that so many ways but I think like if something is running through your veins like that's very much like it's a part of you like it's your very essence um it could be tied back to like your heart so like it could be kind of like your emotional like soul and and being and so that part it's like what did he do with her veins so blue he made strings for his vial so he's playing her heart he's like playing the essence of who she is like that is the part of the vial that um, makes it sing, if you will. So it's like he is literally just using her to his own benefit. He is like, here's my pretty little bride. She is the savior of Prithian and she is my trophy and she is mine. Um, and it's it's gross. Well, and then in the next um, sentence we have, or the next stanza, we have, what did he do with her eyes so bright on his vial? He said at first light, what did he do with her tongue? So rough Twas the new till and it spoke enough. So the eyes part is specifically what kind of caught my attention um, because you can remember like when Farah finally gets to like the court of nightmares, um, she like or the court of um, when they're in the Lars, she sees herself through Resan's eyes. And like she, the first thing she notices, she says, um, my eyes, my father's eyes, like no longer had light in them. Yeah. And so um, the symbolism like of her having her, or her, sorry, her mother's eyes, the symbolism of like her having her mother's eyes is like a continuous thing throughout the series. And so I think it's, you know, kind of another way to show like how Tamlin and like what had happened under the mountain kind of broke her. Yeah. And even in that next line, what did he do with her tongue so rough? Twas the new till and it spoke enough. She was silenced. Like he no longer cared what she had to say when they got back from under the mountain. He was like, what I say goes. And so he very much like silenced her. The next next part is a theory. (laughs) The next part is a theory. So it says, then be spake the treble string. Oh, yonder is my father, the king. Then be spake the second string. Oh, yonder sits my mother, the queen. Then be spake the strings, all three. Yonder is my sister that drowned me. So the theory is that before there was Prithian, there was like this eight, eighth court. And I do think um, like the king and the queen are direct descendants uh, or Pharaoh is like direct descendants of them. Um, and it's like almost like kind of foreshadowing that. Um, but when it says then be stake, bespake the strings all three I think that's talking about the three sisters um and then yonder is my sister that draw me that's Nesta but they have you know come over to Perthian at the end of this Mm-hmm. Yeah, so at the end of this novel, the king has turned Sarah's sisters into high fae. So she is about to spend the rest of her immortal life with her sisters now, um, which is, I mean, <laughs> it's a horror to them all. But it's um, in later novels, they'll kind of like go on that journey together and see like how that affects their relationship um, and their own like personal like journeys. The fourth theory that we have here um, is, again, continuing on about Farrah's mom and my belief that she is descended from the Fae. Um, so they do talk about when Farrah goes to the mortal land for the first time with the inner circle in Resan. She asks where their father is. And I believe Nesta says that Farrah's father is at a, attending a summit and also trading with merchants. Um, but he's attending a summit due to the threat over the wall that they've all heard about. And so a couple ideas kind of popped into my head for this. First one is if you were if you think back to the first book when Tamlin put a glamour on 
Feyre's father and her sisters, like he had written it in there basically that if they sensed trouble coming, that they would flee or like go seek help. And so it could be that with the King of Hybern attacking now that like Tamlin is aware of it, like that triggered like the glamour to work. Um, But my other theory is that, you know, somehow Feyre's mom still had contact with people who were familiar with the Fae and she'd like shared that with their father because I don't really know why else like their dad would know about anything over the wall. Like why was he invited? Yeah. Um, Yeah. It just like struck me as very strange that he would be attending a whole meeting with other people about the threat over in Prithian. And like he said above the wall, he didn't specifically say Prithian. Mm-hmm. Um, which Nesta had assumed he'd meant Prithian, but their father said that they were just talking about over the wall. And so I think yeah. their dad has contact with somebody who still lives in the Fey realm and they like forewarned him. Yeah, um, interesting theory. And it, again, it ties back probably to like the whole eighth court thing and how Feyre's mom is uh, likely descended from Fey. Yeah. Interesting. Going off of the eighth court situation. Heavily investing into the eighth court. We, because we, okay. The surreal is, I'm going to go ahead and say the surreal is like top three fave characters for me. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so oh, absolutely. I love the surreal, tabulous, the surreal. The surreal also, it's clear has a soft spot. (laughs) Yeah. So in the first book, when Feyre uh, captures it for the first time, first of all, everyone's like, it's so hard to capture the surreal, like no one can do it. But Feyre does it first try, no problem. And like, I know she's a good huntress, but like, come on now. Free Sand couldn't even capture the, like the surreal. Mm -hmm. Tamlin couldn't capture the surreal. Like the High Lords of Prithian can't capture it. Yeah, the surreal wanted to be captured for sure. And so when Feyre also like kind of um, like shoots that first arrow to make sure the surreal gets to safety, she like puts its well-being above her own. I think the surreal thing kind of like, like that's just another reason that the surreal's like, I knew I was right about you, Feyre. Like we're, we're besties. Um, and so in the first book, the surreal is, you know, it's obligated to answer whatever questions you ask it when you do capture it. But the surreal... It's offering up more than Feyre's asking. Like a lot of info. (laughs) It is spilling the tea and it is saying Tamlin's the High Lord, like stay with the High Lord. And Feyre's like, okay, which we can talk about that too, because it Which High Lord did he mean? Yeah. All the cereal said was he said Tamlin is High Lord of the Spring Court. Yes. But then all he says is stay with the High Lord and everything will be righted, which at the time, yes, very much it did apply to Tamlin. I think in that instance, yeah, it applied. But the surreal, knowing everything that will ever be and has ever been, it knows that Feyre and Reese are mates, even at this point. Right. But that same thing can apply to Feyre in the second book. Stay with the High Lord and everything, and everything will be righted. And the High Lord in this case is Reese. So the surreal uh-huh. knows what it's doing. My favorite part in the second book, first of all, Homeboy jumped into that little trap. He was like, Bestie, like, where have you been? A new cloak for me? Wow, that's crazy. A cloak in the middle of this forest? Couldn't be. Anyway, (laughs) so it's like, 
whenever he's like telling her like everything he wants to know or she wants to know like he's acting all aggravated you know it's not aggravated it's, yeah he's like oh Feyre I think it's a man in my head I don't think it has a gender yeah um, I don't know but we can in my, in my head it's a man and it's also played by Benedict Cumberbatch I feel um, the same yeah. <laughs> um but anyway my favorite part is when it's like yeah just make sure you give your mate like these flowers and then she's like, wait, what? He's like, oh, my God. Like, you didn't know? <laughs> you didn't know? Yeah, and he's crazy. like, oh, I shouldn't have said anything. Like, oh, no. Oh, my like, God. I can't. And Feyre's like, no, you're telling me everything. And he's oh, okay. Since, like, if you're going to twist like, my we'll arm. Like, we'll twist my arm. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the cereal's just, like, oh, so messy. Like, so messy. But only for Feyre. and I think that goes back to yeah I think they're like kin like they originate from they have some kind of like ties to the eighth court the cereal said it wasn't from any court however um, any existing court existing court so Uh it could be the eighth court yeah because the cereal has been around it has to like tell you the truth like or whatever whenever you ask it questions but it doesn't have to divulge all of the information. Well, it has a fey way of telling the truth, I mm-hmm. think. Yeah, it's like, stay with the High Lord and everything will be right. And, like, which but, one? <laughs> exactly. And it's like, well, I'm not from any court um, that exists now. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> okay, hear me out. What if it wasn't an actual eighth court? What if it was, like, something that, like, kind of ran all of Prithian? Like, what if it was before any of the courts? Like, any, then that's why it said, like, king and queen. Like, what if it was, like, just a king and queen that, like, ran all, like, the part and then eventually like they were killed or something and it split off into courts yeah oh, I could see that being the case so it yeah. was like there was just a kingdom that ruled all of the land yeah. and it got like awesome. overthrown maybe because potentially because the like the high lords exist because they are so powerful mm-hmm. so I'm wondering if like at a certain point like all of these powerful fae just existed and they kind of just like all fought for their own territory. Or like, what if it was like the heirs to like this kingdom and like they were all just like split off into court? No, because then they would all be related. I don't know. I don't know either, but also like- It doesn't always go in the same though. True. And at this point, like so much time has passed. Like it could have looked like anything before. Like whenever they talk about um, the seven high lords ruling Prithian, like it's been that way for a long, long time. Yeah. So what if there wasn't even an eighth court? Oh my God, I have to add this to my vision board. Yeah, we have so much, so much to um, research. Web right now. To read. Um, But yeah, the surreal loves Feyre, wants her to know everything. It's always spilling stuff. It doesn't need to be spilling. And then it's just like tea time. Um, So the final theory that we just want to cover and there's going to be more i'm sure of it is the bond between reese and Feyre. so they talk a lot about how like the cauldron kind of like predetermines bonds and mating and whatever um what i think is very strange is that reese and even says like before he knew who Feyre was like he could see her. It's like he kept getting dreams and like visions of her basically doing stuff. Like he saw her like 
you know, painting. He saw her in a barn, like in hay. And then by the time she had come over to Prithian, he could see, you know, things that she was seeing, like the bog and Amarantha and like all these nightmares that she was having. And so (laughs) I think part of that is because she has like fey blood in her so i'm not sure first i mean i'm sure humans and fey can mate like we haven't really talked a lot about it and it hasn't really been disclosed much in the books and they cover a little bit of it in the third one but it didn't really snap into place for reese until obviously she was made into fey i just think it's very strange how he was able to like kind of see her and feel her Um, beforehand and the fact that he knew they were mates beforehand Um, I agree because so okay I'm saying I do think yes a human and a fae could be mates and I think that a lot of the reason why they don't end up being mated is just because the people live separately and so it's possible that other high fae have had like dreams and visions of their mate that happens to be a human at some point in time but they don't realize what it is one or two, because mates are so rare anyway, maybe it's just it happens so rarely that like it doesn't really come up and no one ever really talks about it. Which is another part of the theory that it's super freaking weird that Elaine was immediately mated upon being created into Fae. So I think mm-hmm. it's with Archeron sisters I and their so Fae blood. <laughs> because also Lucian hadn't like realized that they were mated until Nesta separates them. She's like pulling Elaine away, like trying to protect her herself. Mm-hmm. And Lucian's like, Elaine's my mate. So like he has that realization like right then before that he knew he was like drawn to like comfort her. Yeah, she was like thrown into the cauldron first. So while Nesta was still like being held captive, Elaine was just like crumpled in a ball on the floor, like (laughs) distraught. Right. Um, And Lucian was like wrapping his jacket around her. her. (laughs) Yeah. So like he was drawn to comfort her. And again, like that could just be because like he has basic human decency, but it also could be because he felt compelled to. It is confusing. I I know. Because it could go either way. She doesn't really elaborate on it a lot. Um, I just think it's very strange that two of the three Archeron sisters so far have been mated when it is like this super rare thing that happens. And so I really do think it has something to do with their fabling and that they're made. Yeah, that could be it too. The fact that they, Elaine, especially she came straight from the cauldron. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's why like it is rare for like a mating bond to be created, but like maybe the cauldron was like (laughs) spits her out. And then like the closest thing was Lucian and it's like mates. That'll work. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that'll do well and like the king of hybrid <laughs> too at the end he was like all right like whoever the fuck is next step on up like maybe you <laughs> might get a handsome high lord you mate. too can get a a, a little smoking high fang mate yeah. for yourself like um, he was like hell yeah that worked out great <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah i don't think elaine really sees it that way but maybe with in time <laughs> Um, yeah, it is, it is pretty weird. I wonder if, um, any of you guys have thoughts about the mating bonds, like kind of fill in any of the gaps that maybe we have kind of not, yeah, been able to find out, um, or just like things that you've come up with, but yeah, please send us emails. Like 
I would love to talk about this kind of thing with other people. It helps us see things from a new perspective. I will tell anybody who listens about these things. Please keep reading along with us. I can't wait to read the next book. It is so action-packed. It is a part of Wings and Ruin. That is the third book in the series. Next week, we will be doing a mini-sode where we read through a a fan fiction from the ACOTAR series. So I think it'll mostly kind of be um, about Farah and Resand. but if we can find some other, like, fun ones. I found one about Asriel, and I don't know if we can read it, uh, (laughs) because it may spoil stuff. Uh, Yeah, we may keep it for, like, another time, or for myself, I don't know. Flag that one. At least share it with me. Awesome. Um, <laughs> we can it at least like give the name so of it. Good. People can look it up if they want to. But yeah, we'll we'll try to just keep it limited to things that won't be spoiled beyond the scope of the second book, since we won't have covered anything else at that point. But it should be a really funny time. It's going to be a lot of Resand fanfics. <laughs> um. Oh yeah. Like I feel like that has to be the bulk of what's so written. Many. Can we blame them? No. <laughs> but yeah, please email us at the sisterswarden at gmail.com. Tune in with us next week while we talk about Akatar fan fiction. Get and the heck started on Wings and Ruin. Get it finished. I can't you haven't started yet, guys. Like in the time we've been talking, like I'm already halfway through. Yeah, I can't like I'm reading it, it right now in the back of my head. So get on it. You're already behind. Um, but we will see you next time. And as always, let's get lit. Bye.